Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. This is our first episode of the new year. It's gloomy and rainy outside, which is how we like it here in central Ohio. Today I'm talking to Susan Kiefer, a K-12 substitute teacher, a grader for assessment exams, and an adjunct instructor in history at SNHU. We're going to discuss her academic background, the differences in focusing on regional history versus national history, historiography in general, historiography nerds will get a little excited to hear a bit about Thomas Carlyle's Great Man Theory, the trade-offs between earning a K-12 credential and earning a regular master's degree in history, and the usefulness of music in history courses. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Susan Kiefer. I'm an online instructor. I teach history for Southern New Hampshire. I also work uh, as a, I, I'm a substitute teacher and instructional assistant at uh, Clark County School District in Winchester, Kentucky, where I live. And then I do seasonal scoring for a, a online company that does the standardized testing. Um, I've done SAT essays, uh, advanced placement, history of the year. Um, I did Texas Star when we had that job. And I also do a California Smarter Balance every April and May. So I'm busy. It's all education related, but it's, yeah, I teach, I score, I sub. Great. Well, we'll come back and talk about the rest of that probably in a little bit here. But before we get there, can you tell me a little bit about your academic and professional background? Absolutely. I uh, graduated from Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington in 2007 with a master's in history. And um, I moved immediately. Actually, a couple months before that, I got my first teaching position at Everett Community College in Everett, Washington. I taught my first class. There was Northwest history and I, uh, for 10 years, I taught all the Northwest history classes at Everett Community College. I did online and lecture. And then I also picked up one or two U.S. history classes over the years. Uh, I, start, I, was, I was teaching those every quarter. And then I also, when you're an adjunct uh, teaching, you, you tend to move around a lot if you uh, don't get the classes you need. So I taught at Olympic Community College. I taught at Cascadia. I taught at Edmonds. Uh, just, yeah, I've been moving around. But Everett was always my day job. I always got courses there. And... Then in June of 2016, I walked away from Everett and moved to Kentucky, where I 
uh, tried to get into teaching and into a community college for about a year and a half and ended up on uh, subbing. That's how I got into subbing for the school district here. I can't, with a master's in history uh, uh, and no certification, I can't get hired full-time to teach in a K through 12 classroom, but I can get emergency certification and sub. So I did that and then ultimately heard back from Southern New Hampshire a couple of years ago and uh, started teaching online again. What were your uh, research interests in grad school? When I entered grad school, I was absolutely convinced that my master's thesis was going to be on something involving American Indian policy or American Indian history in general. Uh, I fell in love with regional history. I realized history that I love is the history that you can actually see and that was Northwest history. So what I ended up doing was writing my master's thesis on Vine Deloria Jr. in the Pacific Northwest. And so it was American Indian history meets Northwest uh, history. And, um, and those are still probably two of my passions. Yeah, that sounds great. I uh, am from California, so I'm familiar with some of the West Coast stuff. I didn't study too much in the Northwest, but I have some friends that have studied Northwest history and one that teaches at community college up in uh, Seattle. And he teaches teaches the Pacific Northwest occasionally. It sounds like it's a really interesting topic and uh, class to teach, too. It, well, it's, you know, I, I actually still use it a lot in my U.S. histories because the thing about Northwest history uh, and the thing that I like to do in all my history classes is challenge these neat and tiny stories that we have, this idea that there is one truth in history, one narrative. And so and what Northwest history does, what regional history does, is it challenges this idea that Everyone in America is invested in the American Revolution and the Civil War. Well, guess what? In Washington state, we weren't even a state until 1889. And so it's not that it's not our history, but it's definitely a different perspective. You feel left out a lot. You feel like if you, and growing up in the Northwest, you don't feel the same way that you do if you grow up on the East Coast and you can walk through poverty years house and so that's where it, um, for me that's um, what I love about regional history is that it's a way to get students from anywhere to engage in history because it's it and to challenge that national narrative that uh, says that we were uh, we're all a part of this American Revolution and we're all a part of this Civil War and so on and so on and it's just a really neat way to to kind of get students to think about other perspectives, other ways of looking at the same story. So is there a Northwest American Revolution story? Is there a is there a California Civil War story? Uh, I'll bet there is. So Yeah, and that's really interesting that you put it that way. The the American West was a focal point of my BA and MA degrees, uh, my the programs that I was involved with were very Western history oriented. And you're right, it, there is a sense that 
it, it's surprised me when I when I went to get my PhD how little I had ever actually learned about things like the Civil War and the American Revolution. Because yeah, out out in the West, those almost feel like they're happening in a different country. Because yeah, like you said, this is a it's a younger area, younger area. Uh, it's a less settled area. Uh, yeah, there is civil war stories in California, and I'm sure in Washington when it was a territory and all that too. I mean, California contributed a hundred and some odd troops, <laughs> so there is there is a connection. But yeah, there's but you know, a much much higher priority was put on things like the gold rushes. Exactly, that's it. And you know, and I and I tell my students in my Northwest History class, I would tell my students, you know, we don't even emerge on the map until Lewis and Clark put us there in eighteen oh four and eighteen oh five. Right. And then we disappear again for a while until the gold rush. And that's where you get some Oregon history because they stopped in Oregon before they went down to California. And a lot of them stayed in Oregon because it was a pretty rough trip. And, and you know, yeah. And so so it's just like I said, you know, it's it, it, it gets students. It's for me, regional history, the history of place is the history of it's it's a different story. And the more stories we can introduce to students, the better chance that we have of getting them to understand that there really is no such thing as one truth in history. Um, one narrative that we're all going to agree on anyways. Um, and, and I think that when we do that, we come a lot closer to um, being able to show students how relevant history is in comparison to today. And we, uh, I believe there was, there was as much chance of politicians or um, religious experts or women or African-Americans or and just people in general coming together and ultimately deciding then and there that this was our path in much the same way as that's just not the case today. You know, history is messy. And yet for a long time and, and still in some cases, we try to teach students that it's not, that, that we can make these neat and tidy stories that begin here and end here and tell the story of a nation that uh, just kind of all stepped in line and got it, got it done. You, you made an interesting point a minute ago that has got me thinking when we're looking at or when we're talking about how history has different interpretations, different perspectives, different viewpoints, depending on who you are and where you are. It, it made me think a little bit about that because usually when we're designing courses and we try to emphasize different interpretations and all that, people tend to focus on political interpretations. Mm -hmm. So you'll hear like the, you know, the leftist revisionist view of history or the conservative great man view of history. You'll hear about kind of the political interpretations, but I think you have, you're onto something interesting when you say that another way to do it that might be less antagonistic to students would be looking at it from a place perspective. 
Exactly. And it is less, that's it exactly. And it's less offensive because here's the thing. I've been doing this for a long time. And so I've been, I know where I fall politically. And yet as an instructor, you have to be open to someone else's political view. And, and what I realized very quickly is that I'm a woman who's been kind of left out of history for a long time. Um, I am also uh, from a place um, that's a little more liberal and that's also been left out of history for a very long time. And that's kind of developed in me this um, this act that is just grinding towards um, paring down the national narrative so that I'm included as a woman, as someone that grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and it does sometimes become antagonistic. Now, and, and where, I've, where I've had to ring that in is when you do get students that come in with that also have their perspective and it, and it falls in line with the national narrative. And so, and, and where I see that a lot is with um, the military students. Uh, I have a lot of military students that will come in and they will want to do their research projects on the typical stories that we hear. And those are, you said, the political. I would say those are the war stories. Um, it, I would go so far as to say that our history from beginning to end in the eras that are defined in U.S. history are defined because of the wars that we fought. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we got the American Revolution period. Um, we've got, uh, you know, with um, World War II defines all of 1940. The Cold War defines all of 1950. Um, you know, you could just go, war defines us historically. Um, politicians, great men define us histor historically. So the way, so for me, and this is what I do um, is, and I, what I did do when I was doing my own classes is I would actually challenge the um, this civil war narrative that says it ends because there's no more definitive ending than the end of the civil war. It ended mm -hmm. unconditionally by U.S. Grant, right? It's unconditional surrender. So then what I would do is I would have students create a um, pick a region they could either they could stay in the north they could go in the south or they could come west with me and then we would look at reconstruction and and we would see three very different narratives because reconstruction in the south is federal reconstruction Reconstru reconstruction in the south is completely different what's going on in in, in the Northwest, well, industrialization um, is, is just, and it, so it is, it's, it, in my opinion, looking at place along with time is a way to challenge the national narrative in a way that is less offensive to students, but also in a way that allows them to engage. And especially when you are in an online classroom, because all of your class, all of your students are coming from different places. So it's just a, an opportunity for them to start thinking about the history that's around them. So as someone in, so I've got a student from Detroit and all of a sudden they're thinking about, what happened during the Civil War in Detroit? 
uh, just in, in, anything that gets them thinking about the past is, is a win in my book. Yeah, that's one of the things I always encourage students to do when a course has a pretty open-ended research project. If it's not pre-prescribed, then that's different, obviously. But if it's open-ended, I always tend to try to get students to look locally because it's a different story. Like you said, it's different from the national story because things play out on the ground in different towns in different ways. It's also, uh, you've got access to sources because they're all close by. And it's also, it's, it's a way to contribute something new to the conversation. Because yeah, like you said, if it, in, in an undergraduate class, if I ask a student to write a paper on the Cold War, I'm going to get, you know, 25 variations of the same theme, which is that, you, you know, there's the Iron Curtain speech, right, right. 68, <laughs> Korea, Vietnam, you know, that basically the same storyline, space race. Whereas if you say, you know, okay, take this, you know, take the Cold War, how did it play out in your town? What did your village, community, city, whatever, how did it play out there? That Then you're going to get 25 very different papers because it all plays out in different ways, different sources. So I'm with you. That the locals, local regional history is great. Exactly. It's also, and then the other thing that it does is it becomes, and this is the other thing that history, um, one of the things that history means to me is that it is a tool, tool to empower everyday people. And um, sometimes that's difficult to do when you are um, dealing with the great man theory. So, you know, you've got your founding fathers and you've got this idea that you have to be George Washington in order to contribute to society. Well, um, one of my other favorite um, assignments that uh, lectures that I gave in my Northwest history class was a lecture on the civil rights movement in the Pacific Northwest. Well, there was one and, and a lot of it mirrors what was going on in the South. You know, we, Martin Luther King, came and spoke in Seattle. Um, we had uh, black two local Black Panthers, the Dixon brothers, um, made a name for themselves in Seattle during that time. So there were there were housing um, discrimination issues. Um, we had a walkout. Um, uh, uh, it's the history is there, and it parallels the national story. And yet, it's also historically unique in um, getting to know. The people that on a local level that um, that participated in these events, because all of a sudden you're you're showing students that you don't need to be Martin Luther King to make a difference. You can be Aaron Dixon, that guy that grew up in Seattle with a brother, and you started a local chapter, and um, you got arrested, and you spent a little time in jail, and you ultimately um, used that time to, to sort out how you were going to move forward with the local civil rights movement, and you made a difference. And so, it, again, that's where regional history um, becomes a tool to empower students that may feel helpless today. And, you know, a lot of us do feel helpless today. Um, there's a lot of big stuff, a, little, a lot of big political stuff going on. What can we do in these stories, these local stories of people that aren't Martin Luther King, but used him as a model and um, kind of step forward and, and, uh, and change the world for the better, uh, that's something that you can direct 
students towards when you're teaching regional history. Yeah, that's a good way to get to historical skills. Like, I've always thought it would be interesting to assign a paper that says something like, you know, tell me the history of the civil rights movement without mentioning Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. Exactly. Exactly. That would be, boy, you really, yeah. you know, and there you go. There you go. Which tells you right now they are anchors. You know, they are, and that's a new one. I've always used bookends. I, I say, uh, wars, U.S. histories, any war fought in the United States acts as a book and one era begins when that war started and it ends when that war ended. So I've used bookends as an analogy, but you're right, we've got anchors too, and those would be our great men. And I would say those specific um, events. So, you know, you've got the... Um, the march on Selma, you know, well, we we had one down I-5, the corridor, they shut it down. You know, they shut down I-5 in, in Seattle over, I think it was a Pike, Pike Place Bridge or whatever. So, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I love the idea. I think it'd be, I think that would be an awesome assignment. I think it'd be hard. I think it'd be really hard, but that's. Oh, it would. And there would be, I mean, students who have been raised with kind of the standard narrative and he had a lot of, you know, a lot of professional historians who are raised with, with that standard narrative would be stumped by that. How, what do you mean? <laughs> how, do, how do I do that? That's where, that's, that's where I use my international students. I, I love to encourage them to um, feel free to, uh, to just use the fact that you, you're kind of, pure in in regards to what you know and don't know because that's really a great way for us to challenge and me too the the way that I think about history so it's it's yeah you know because I think that's it I think for me that um the best thing that you can give students is a way to think about the past that is fluid and and that that isn't set in stone because it's it's those hard boundaries it's those hard bookends those anchors where we start to just kind of lose our ability to negotiate the past and when we lose our ability to negotiate the past i feel like we lose our ability to negotiate the present and that's a problem right now. That is a huge problem right now. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about your, so we know that, so you said that you're an adjunct instructor at SNHU, you're a substitute teacher for a school district there in Kentucky, and you do the, the, the testings uh, scoring. So can you tell us a little bit about how did you, you mentioned that you got into the substitute teaching gig by moving to Kentucky. And then you said that you don't have a, the credential for us. So you're not able to teach full time, but you are able to do the, the substitute teaching route. So if somebody's coming out of, you know, a history program uh, as an, as a BA or an MA, how, what advice do you give them if they're looking to kind of break into the K through 12 world, either as a substitute or a full-time teacher? Well, let me just let me just start with a little story about a decision I had to make between my BA and the master's program. I was wrapping up my BA in 2004, and the decision before me was I, I knew I was going for my master's, but I had two ways to go. I could go for certification that would have allowed me to teach in any K through 12 classroom, or I could go for my straight 
master's in history. And it, it seemed to me at the time that getting certified was far more practical. And I, I feel like I would have walked into a K through 12 job where there would have been more job security, more stability. Uh, as teaching as an adjunct, you were contract to contract. Um, you very rarely uh, work over summer. I was lucky. I always had at least one summer class. And, you know, I was also really lucky because I tend to fill up my classes. So I, while I was never tenured, I did qualify for benefits. And, and that's also a little more rare. So had I done the certification, all of that would have been a non-issue. I would have, I would have had state benefits. I would have been teaching K through 12, though, and let me tell you, um, as a sub, working as a sub now, it's a little shocking to find out that uh, even in high school, social studies tends to focus more on geography than history. And I'm not sure when that happened. I've only been subbing for a couple of years, but I, I think it makes me really glad that I didn't go that route, but it's something to think about. You know, you've really got two different, it's, it's a big decision, you know, do you do, and, and it involves deciding what age you want to, what age you want to teach, what subject you want to teach. And in my case, the decision was clear. I wanted to teach history and more so I wanted to spend two more years just reading good books and not taking classes on how to manage my behavior in my classroom. Mm -hmm. That was the difference between the master's program and uh, had I gone for certification, the courses that I would have been taking um, would have been those behavior management classes, um, curriculum development, all of that. But now the the trade-off was that I ended up with a master's in history that, that meant I knew a lot of history, but I had no teaching skills. And so that was a rude awakening. And I just ended up, it was trial by fire. I ended up in a classroom and just trying to glean information from anyone that would help me for the first couple of years, the dean of my department, the other history instructors for the department. Uh, so there were some holes there and God help any student that had me the first year I taught because I, I wasn't that good. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't have those skills. And so it's something to think about, you know, when um, when you're making that decision, you've got your history, you, you know it's going to be history and you know you want to teach. You really do need to make that decision of um, whether you're going to get certified to teach or whether you're just going to get your master's in history. And there's good and bad for both. You know, the good uh, certification is definitely going to give you more stability. And, and I would say maybe even more money. Um, but uh, in my case, I chose I chose the other path simply because I wanted to do what I'm doing now, and that is sitting in a higher education classroom, waxing philosophical about the past and not geography. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I have learned talking to a bunch of people through this podcast is that 
the lack of teaching experience is fairly common, especially for coming out of an MA program. PhD, you get a little bit more. Usually you're doing, there's some classroom component because that's how you pay your way through a PhD program, but that's usually not the case for an MA. And so there is kind of a sense that a lot of people come out of an MA program knowing a lot about history, but not knowing how to teach it at all. And that can be a huge uh, obstacle for people. Exactly. Well, I found, I think there were two, two, two struggles that I had immediately. And the first one was um, how to fill an hour with lecture. And I said, I don't think I know an hour's worth of history, let alone five. And that's how, you know, I mean, that was, that was traumatic. And, and so I, you know, I really did end up having to kind of bring in more discussions and um, uh, just wing it. Uh, there was a lot of winging it that just trying to fill up that time. And now it just seems like there's hardly enough time, but um, you know, but that came from experience. And then the other big the other big issue was uh, just creating a curriculum that wasn't busy work. Uh, God help me, I found out about Rate My Professor really early on in my career. And one of the first comments that someone made about me was that I gave I did busy work and mm-hmm. and that just cut me I, that went that way I was like, no, no, no. And then I realized that what was so awful about that is that I actually had objectives. They just weren't clear. And so it wasn't until it was about three or four years into my teaching at Everett Community where I got offered a course at Cascadia College. They considered themselves a teaching college. And so they not only offer you faculty development courses, they um, – I. Uh, I had uh, online training, um, uh, a lot of stuff uh, that that kind of uh, kind of helped me fill in some holes. But one of the things that I will always remember was during our orientation, they talked about developing a, a way to develop assignments where rather than develop the assignments, you ask yourself what you want students to do. And then you develop the assignment from that using that. What is your finish? What's your ideal finished product from a student? And then you work backwards from there to develop the objectives and the instructions for getting that ideal assignment out of a student. And that's, you know, but like I said, that was three, four years into my teaching that I was starting to really put some thought into developing my assignments and my curriculum. It's like I said, it's been a process and it is. And so. Sadly, at Everett, um, due to budget cuts, uh, they did a lot of faculty development training at the beginning of my career, but a lot of that got cut out as um, with the state started dealing with budget cuts, and, and then they became... They, they still offer a lot of that, but it's unpaid. There's no stipend, so you just don't get as much interest in it. It's really kind of sad um, that the, uh, we're not seeing as much interest in faculty development and course development. And that's, I'm going to say, I'm just going to give uh, props to Southern New Hampshire right here, right now. That's what made me fell in love with Southern New Hampshire. You go through three weeks training before you can even, you, I mean, they've done that for you. You've got 
constant opportunity for um, faculty development. You've got courses. I could take courses right now if I want. Um, and, and so and you've got you've got that faculty support. You've got your team lead. You've got all of that. So, I mean, in all honesty and without sounding like a promo for Southern New Hampshire, if I was teaching, if I and I said this, I told this to my uh, training instructor, I wish Southern New Hampshire had been my first teaching job because they don't just throw you in the pool. They they walk you in there and they hold on to you. They put they put floaties on you and they hold your hand until you're ready to let go. And um, you just don't see that a lot. And I'm, I've been. I've been around enough to know that it's an exceptional program if you're new to teaching. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. Do you, let's So let's move on to our uh, recommendations. Do you have anything you'd like to uh, recommend to the audience today? Well, I, you know, one of the things that um, I, I have been kind of, I'm going to tell you where it came from. Uh, I've, you know, one of the things that's trending right now is the fact that at the last waltz, by the band, the concert, this, this documentary concert, uh, it's anniversary, 50 years ago. That's when that video came out. That's when that, uh, that's when they did their last concert, the band. And uh, so the weight, that song, um, it, the weight, they're, they're big song. It's 50 years old. And so I've been kind of caught up in the history of the song and not just the lyrics, but in that era, that the 1970s. And granted, it comes partly because I had a student who did the research project on a 1970 cult. Uh, she looked at Jonestown. She looked at um, uh, a couple of the other ones. And so I'm just kind of in the 70s right now. And the 70s had some fantastic music. And what, what I, so in terms of recommendation, what I'm kind of really finding myself realizing is that we don't use music enough in our courses. And I um, really would love to see more use of music. I, I have one analogy that I use. I use a Nirvana analogy when I talk about historical contacts. Um, and I bring up Kurt Cobain and this idea that he's immaculately conceived. He, he just emerged overnight and just became this MTV generation icon and you know i mean he's like who knows 200 years from now he's going to be baby jesus he's immaculately conceived and you know that's that's great except that that's also where historical context comes in because if you understand he grew up in aberdeen Washington, Timbertown during the National Recession, um, at the same time that you have a neighboring town, Seattle, bringing in a tech industry that's going to create this incredible class distinction between your white collar workers in Seattle and your recessed timber town children whose parents are laid off because the sawmill closed. Um, and that's how you understand the counterculture and that's how you understand Kurt Cobain. So, you know, that you see music more to draw analogies like that. Um, I could see it being used for primary source and secondary source examples. You know, if you, if you throw out a song and you say the lyrics are primary, uh, any discussion about who wrote it or what was going on at the time to inspire that song, that's secondary. 
And then I also, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think, oh, this could be, if if I could create my own course, it it would be a course on the history of music. And it would start with the Star Spangled Banner. And, oh, we have to look at the national anthem because how relevant would that be, you know, just in terms of some of the debates that are going on today. And there's Civil War music. There's World War II. There's jazz. And then, of course, there's the and there's the band. So I just think my recommendation would be, you know, to to bring in more music, to start thinking about music as a way to engage students in the past. I don't think it gets enough credit as a source. That's great. I approve wholeheartedly of that. And that actually kind of convinced me that my my recommendation is going to be for, it's actually a band that seems to have a pretty good sense of history. Uh, there's a band called They Might Be Giants, which has been around since, yeah, boy, the early 80s. Uh, they're still on tour, as far as I know. So, um, <laughs> But they have uh, a bunch of songs that are actually based on history. They've got, a, they've got an entire song about James K. Polk, um, president from the 1840s. Yeah, don't even get me started because there's a grunge band from the Northwest that does 5440 or fight. Oh, 54. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. 5440 or five. Yeah. They Might Be Giants also recorded a version of Tippecanoe and Tyler 2, the campaign song. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, and then, you know, let's talk about Kurt Cobain. I mean, some of his lyrics, I don't know, you feel free to edit this one out, but, you know, um, he's got some pretty, one of his Rape Me um, is, is pretty, pretty intense. Well, did you know that Seattle is. Uh, known historically as uh, the birthplace of the first rape clinic. I did not know that. At the same time, 1970, around the same time. You know, this is all coming out. So, yeah, there's so much that can be done with music. Um, and not to mention the fact, oh, my gosh, I can't even believe that I haven't mentioned Hamilton yet because Lin-Manuel, I mean, he just blew it wide open. And I don't think I don't use that on my discussion boards. I, I've got all my U.S. Constitution. Uh, anyone that talks about Alexander Hamilton in their work, don't think they don't get a a, a Hamilton uh, song from me on as I, because yeah, I mean, and and they love it. They absolutely love it. You know, he's done more for uh, the history of founding fathers. I would say in the last twenty five years, just in terms of getting people interested. Uh, I love that he talks about the book that all of this came from. Uh, it became an overnight bestseller because of it. And so, yeah, I mean, just I just feel like music is, is a great way to get people to talk about history, to look more closely at history, and more so to just kind of you know, think about even this, these things that we know. You can have a song in your head that you've been singing for, like I said, the wait for apparently 50 years and not really get the whole context behind that. But here I am, you know, 50 years later, wanting to look more closely at not at where that song came from and when that song came out and, uh, and what that all means. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a great recommendation. And, you know, while I go off and start programming my Spotify playlist to start playing this stuff, I will say, you know, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me today. And thank you all for joining us today. 
If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, or suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Susan Kiefer, I'm Rob Denning. Have a great 2020.